From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. As easy as it can be to get caught up in the stakes of games and start to lose perspective, life can sometimes provide a stark reminder of the things that truly matter. All of Gator Nation had that shared experience last Saturday, as the terrifying situation involving basketball star Keontae Johnson sent shockwaves through the world of sports. On today's show, we'll discuss the latest developments in the week-long saga and how the basketball program is handling the challenging situation with FloridaGators.com senior writer Chris Harry. We'll also hear from fellow senior writer Scott Carter about football's surprising loss to LSU, the impending showdown with Alabama, and the new blood coming into the program on the early National Signing Day. Then, linebacker James Houston IV stops by to reflect on a season unlike any other, the legacy behind his name, and much more. But first, there are certainly more questions than answers at this point when it comes to Keontae Johnson, and his status may very well have changed by the time you hear this episode, which was recorded on Wednesday afternoon. Despite that, we asked Chris to open up our roundtable by taking us through a tumultuous and unprecedented week in the history of the basketball program, beginning with the events in Tallahassee. Uh, Adam, it was a a day um, like very few days I've had in, in my life, uh, certainly in my professional career. Uh, I mean, talk about, uh, getting a jolt of perspective. I mean, I've been doing this a long time. That was just, uh, you know, that, that, that was a, just a, a horrifying kind of experience. And again, you know, dealing with the unknown, um, in the aftermath of that game and seeing the, uh, just wondering what was going on, not, not having any idea what was happening. Um, all you knew is what you saw uh, from the from video, and the video um, from that game when that happened with Keontae Johnson, the the reaction of the players, uh, mm-hmm. seeing them crying and 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 you know just knowing what they were going through, like I said, in that element of unknown and getting the you know piecemeal information from inside the basketball program. There was only so much that uh, that they could be told. There was only so much that probably the doctors knew. And that's why when we started to get the reports, he was in critical stable. That was the first thing we heard. Then uh, he was still in critical and stable. Um, then he was being airlifted uh, and the family was with him. Uh, Mike White and Duke uh, Werner, the, uh, the trainer, stayed in Tallahassee with, uh, with Keontae throughout his, his situation. And then when we heard that, uh, that he was responding to commands that was a very positive thing, obviously, but to get that uh, 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 statement and the release from the family that he had faced time with his team, that he was uh, sitting up, um, talking to his father, uh, you know, the next day, those are all really, really super encouraging kind of things to hear. And obviously the, the players were ecstatic to know that about their, about their friend and their teammate and really friend above teammate at that point because mm-hmm. uh, they all love Keontae. Keontae is a very effervescent, um, upbeat uh, guy. And it's just uh, the gut punch. Uh, it's just, it's, it, this is a difficult, difficult time. And to, 
what these what this team is going through in dealing with this is, is something that's really going to be hard to to work their way through and it's going to it's going to take them all the coaching staff the support staff each other they're going to have to really come together to see where the, where the season goes from here and right now that's that that is certainly uncertain and I imagine we'll know more about that Scott Strickland was on the radio in Gainesville on Wednesday uh, saying that the team is going to you know, have a hand in or have a say in what, what happens, but, uh, uh, in terms of this, you know, the next few games in terms of this season. So, uh, we'll, you know, we got to let, we got to let this situation play out because it's funny <laughs> back when COVID started happening and the answers to everything was, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. And we were talking about, I think I said any number of times there was no playbook for this. Well, there's no playbook for this either. Mm-hmm. You know, two situations in sports with this, yeah, that year that we, they haven't had any play before, so that's uh, that's say it's a fluid situation would be a, a, an incredible understatement. But the the most important thing, obviously, Adam is 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 Keontae Johnson's health, and those things are trending in a positive direction this week. And for that, uh, everybody uh, in, in Gator Nation, I'm sure, is ecstatic and thankful, and just as they are in college basketball, because you saw if you're in social media. You saw the outpouring of support from people, um, from programs across the country uh, relative to the health and, you know, sending good shout outs and, and positive vibes to Keontae. You know, there's probably, unless you wear a jersey or are uh, on the official staff, there's no one that's more, that's closer or more embedded with this team than you are. Now, I know that's a little bit different because of COVID, but from a, a team perspective, and, and again, just the, the guys in this program and, and basketball programs because of their size, I mean, they're among the smallest programs in, in the athletic department. So it's obviously very tight knit. Um, what has this week been like from the standpoint of everybody else? Uh, obviously, the game was postponed. There hasn't been, you know, a lot of official team activity, but I mean, w- what has that been like? What's the communication been like between the coaches and the players and just everything that in, in this unprecedented situation? Well, the, the, the coaching staff and the support staff and the medical staff, the health staff, what, they've kept the, the, the players updated um, as much as they can. I mean, Keontae's situation is, a, it's, I mean, the updates on his status have all been uh, with the blessing. Whatever's come out has been with the blessing of the family. It has to be that way with just with regards to when it comes to this kind of thing. But uh, it's, you know, obviously it's been really, really hard on the players. I mean, there's guys that are Keontae's roommates on this team. And um, he's not just the best player on the team. That, these guys love him. He is a great kid. He is from, uh, uh, I, I tweeted out, um, people go back and see it on my timeline. I went back to the story I wrote about him last year and his family his, his, he's from a, he's got a very disciplined background his father was a career arm, arm uh, excuse me career navy he was born in Jacksonville at naval at naval station Air, uh, Mayport um, his mom was in internal affairs in Norfolk Police Department hmm. so uh, anyone watched his uh, uh, law and order they know, <laughs> you know or in some of these cop shows they know yeah. what internal affair, affairs people are okay he's got two sisters. I believe he's the youngest of the, of the three siblings, very close family. Um, there's only so much I can say to be honest with you. Um, mm-hmm. but I think it's pretty obvious, uh, what he means to, to this team inside the locker room and obviously on the court. And, you know, Mike White obviously has never dealt with anything remotely close to this. Uh, the, the, 
Florida basketball program has not dealt anything with remo remotely close to this. If you want to talk about Gator history, I mean, you can, you can go back to in 2001 when the, the football team lost Aristos Tan, when he had his collapse during the summer, he just enrolled, I believe as a, as a true freshman, he was there for summer conditioning and that happened. That was, that was a traumatic, uh, very difficult time. I think if you were to ask Jeremy Foley, that may have been the most difficult time he had in his 25 years as athletic director. Back in 1990, there was a baseball player uh, here, um, Stephen Georgiadis, I believe, who had a, I think he went into a, to have a routine surgery on, and ended up dying um, in, 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 on the operating table. That was, you know, these, these things don't come on very often, thank God. But uh, people saw the video, the hard video of, of what happened with Keontae on the court. That stuff, uh, um, that stays with you. Mm -hmm. And the players that were on the court, I, I just can't imagine what uh, what the aftermath was like. And I go back to the uncertainty of not knowing. All they knew is Keontae was in the hospital. They knew he was in critical but stable condition. Um, they probably weren't getting a whole lot more than that because there wasn't a whole lot more to tell. They had to wait. They had to wait to see what happened with them. And that's why um, there was so much relief to hear the good news. And let's hope the good news keeps coming. So while everyone was obviously very focused on the Keontae Johnson situation Saturday and, and trying to just get a better idea of what was going on, how he was doing, there was a, a big game that was played in the Swamp. And, uh, you know, Scott, it was a game that I think a lot of people, including the odds makers, expected Florida to roll, and, uh, and, and that did not happen. You know, we've talked the last few weeks about the, the ho-hum performances, and they were enough to get by Kentucky, Vanderbilt, etc., but uh, they were not enough to get by an LSU team that came in with nothing to play for and yet played you know, very, very inspired, probably more than more so than, than most people thought they would. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those games that certainly didn't turn out like the Gators wanted uh, or expected. I know I was in the camp that thinking, OK, after a, a couple of maybe uh, subpar performances, the Gators would crank things up offensively and go into Atlanta you know, with the victory, I mean, you looked at LSU and they were ranked dead last in the SEC in pass defense. They were coming off a 41-point loss to Alabama the week before. Things were certainly adding up in Florida's favor. And, I, I you know, I bought into that. And I think uh, most Gator fans and most people really did. I mean, it was it was a surprise to what happened. Uh, I, uh, I look at it as a couple of things. I mean, Florida, I thought, played probably the worst game of the year. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't play specifically well in area, any area of the game. I mean, whether it was special teams, offense, defense. We saw Kyle Trask uncharacteristically make, you know, three turnovers in the first half. He came into the game with three turnovers all season, uh, interceptions. He had two interceptions and a fumble in the first half. And I remember uh, just watching the game, thinking to myself, like early, really in the first half, like, yeah, you know, this is a game that could go wrong for Florida if they don't get it going fast. And the longer LSU hung around, the more it felt like that. And even though, you know, you could say, well, in the end, they still had a chance to tie and go to overtime. They were very lucky to even be in that position. You know, I know a lot of people have, you know, use Marco Wilson's uh, silly mistake as a scapegoat. Certainly not his finest moment, but even before then, there was so many things adding up that I do buy into the fact that I don't look at it as one one guy's loss. I mean, they just didn't do anything well that night. I mean, they couldn't stop LSU at critical times. 
They couldn't make critical plays in the red zone when they had the opportunity. You had the mental mistakes like Wilson's shoe throw. You know, Adam, I guess the way I sum this game up in a lot of ways is how often is there a loss like that, as stunning as a defeat as it is, and the field goal kicker for Florida, one of the country's best field goal kickers, Evan McPherson, he misses a field goal that could have tied it and sent it in overtime. And quite frankly, it's an afterthought. Nobody's really even talking about Evan McPherson. They're talking more about Marco Wilson. They're mm-hmm. talking about Kyle Trask turnovers. They're talking about the defensive lapses. They're talking about Cade York's 57-yard field goal. So, I mean, very rarely in, in – Certainly, Florida history, you're going to have a game where a kicker misses such an important kick, and really, he's he's not even being talked about, and rightfully so. I mean, it was not on Evan McPherson. He just happened to get an opportunity there in a tough situation, didn't make it. And, of course, you got the fog, too. I, yeah. You know, when I look at this game, I mean, it, it will be one in Florida football history that will stand for a long time just because of its uniqueness. Uh, someone that was a sports writer friend called me today, and we were talking about it. He was asking me, would that be on my Mount Rushmore of like Florida defeats? And, you know, I'm thinking, okay, you got to me fourth and dumb in 76 against Georgia. Yeah. You got the Lindsey Scott in 1980 against Georgia, which uh, you've got this one, one. Oh, the choke at Doke. I mean, the tie yeah. at Florida State. That's a pretty good Mount Rushmore. I mean, when I look at it, I still think the 2001 loss that the Gators had to Tennessee after the 9 11 postponement and reschedule. I still think that is maybe the most disheartening loss uh, or obviously the 95 championship game against Nebraska, but that's in its own category that this was a what if kind of moment here in that game. They were in a championship. This was a what if moment. And uh, that's the way it goes sometimes. Yeah. It, I would also say it maybe had the feel of the, the 2008 Ole Miss game, the the promise game, just in terms of a home defeat, that is that is stunning that no one saw coming albeit in that case it was early in the year there was a chance to rebound the championship hopes from it and ultimately Ole Miss turned out to be a really good team I think they went to the Cotton Bowl that year Um, yeah this has a little bit of a different feel but you try to put it in perspective Scott I think what's interesting is if Florida goes out this weekend and like most people expect and loses handily to Alabama the, the ramifications of this loss won't be quite as significant. Now, if Florida goes out and beats Alabama and this LSU loss is what keeps them out of the playoff, then I think it's one that you can put on that Mount Rushmore and lament for years to come. But really, the story of the LSU game, I feel like it can't be completely told until we add in whatever happens in Atlanta to complete that full picture in the same way that we're able to, to look back on the 08 Ole Miss game differently because of what came after it. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly uh, some truth in that, I think. Uh, I think it's going to be f- totally fascinating if Florida does go up to uh, Atlanta if they were to pull the upset. I mean, it would be one of the most fascinating scenarios that the college football playoff committee has had to deal with yet just because of they lost LSU, but then they go they somehow rebound and beat Alabama. And then what, what happens to Alabama? What happens to Florida? What happens to Texas A&M? I mean, all kind of great yeah. scenarios there. Uh, not a lot of people are going to give Florida that opportunity. Uh, I still think they can play a lot better than they did against LSU and give Alabama a game. I don't look at this as an automatic blowout like a lot of people around the country are. And I would say that if I wasn't at FloridaGators.com, I just think <laughs> 
I think this matchup is one that both of these offenses are high-powered. I don't see – I think Alabama's defense has certainly been more consistent than Florida, certainly in the second half of the season. They've been really good. But I think this Florida offense, if it doesn't shoot itself in the foot, I think they can still move the ball against Alabama. But, of course, you know, talk to me next week. I could be wrong <laughs> again. I've been wrong before. But what I like is – the scenarios that you mentioned there, uh, it did change the tone around this game a lot, the lost LSU. Without question, if Florida had played well and beaten LSU, uh, this game would be – the magnitude of it would be on a different level. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still a big game. It's still going to be one people are very interested in. But on the Florida side, you know, you that lost LSU certainly dampened some of the, the mood going into going into the SEC championship game. Well, you mentioned the college football playoff, and when you look at the rankings that came out, uh, Florida lost at home to a team with a losing record, and they only dropped one spot. So I think it does show you, I don't know if beating Alabama would be enough to get Florida into the playoff, but the reaction from the committee to Florida's loss seems to suggest that they are still pretty high on the Gators, and you know, theoretically, if Florida does go out and beats Alabama and looks really good doing it, maybe that door is still open for them. It's hard to believe that the door would be totally closed if you only drop one spot following that game. Yeah, I agree. And I, that ranking certainly caught a lot of people's attention. And I do think it is, a you know, kind of indicates what the committee thinks of Florida. I mean, uh, you know, you look at their two losses, both of them are basically on last second field goals. They've lost two games by a combined six points. Uh, the one in Texas A&M was just a shootout. Both teams going up and down the field. Texas A&M got the ball last because of a fumble. And this one here was was harder to take, I think, from a standpoint of when it came. And just knowing that it's one of those matchups where if you match these teams up again this weekend, you know, Florida's still going to be favored. They probably would beat LSU in a series, you know, if this was another sport. But it's not. It's one game, and uh, you get one chance, and – uh, they were without Kyle Pitts. That's another storyline that has factored in. I mean, does he help in the red zone? Uh, I think most people think yes. Uh, it, it's you also give LSU credit. I mean, their freshman quarterback Max Johnson made some plays, and I thought their defense really looked a lot different against Florida's pass than they had looked against other teams' passing attacks. I mean. There wasn't a lot of room in that first half for Florida's receivers. Uh, They got open more in the second half, and Kadarius Toney, I thought, had his finest game as a Gator, even though Mm -hmm. it was a losing cause. I mean, he was tremendous. Um, But Gators have to regroup. I mean, it's all there is to it. There's no, you know, it's over. You can't can't talk about it forever. If you're going to have a chance to get in that conversation to still get in the playoff, you got to go up and beat Alabama. You have no other option. And I know you you mentioned, you know, that you think the path is there. Um, what what does it look like? I mean, outside of obviously playing much, much better, uh, Alabama has just been steamrolling the last few weeks. So I'm curious, for, from your standpoint, what does a winning formula against Alabama in Atlanta look like? Well, uh, the first thing to me is the defense is going to have to force some turnovers because they haven't forced any the last two games. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got to force Alabama into a mistake here and there, and that's hard. I mean, they don't make many mistakes. On the flip side, it's the obvious. Florida has to reduce the mistakes that it made last week in LSU against LSU. You can't have three turnovers, uh, give up 13 points and not score any on turnovers uh, and expect to beat Alabama. And that's just, 
if you do those things, Adam, maybe force a turnover too and your offense plays well, that maybe just keeps it a close game against the Crimson Tide because they are that good. I mean, mm-hmm. as good as Florida's offense is, I think you look at Mac Jones and, and Devontae Smith and those other guys on the Alabama offense, I think they're just as good. So some things are going to have to go right for the Gators. Uh, again, I just think that they have the offense, if they can play mistake-free, to play in a shootout against Bama. I just don't know if they they can do it defensively to create those mistakes and, and shut them down enough to where you get the advantage if you're going drive for drive. But uh, it's going to be fun to watch on Saturday. I think if you like if you like offense, Adam, this is your <laughs> kind of game, buddy. You've come to the right place, yes. And certainly it'll have Heisman ramifications as well, although because of the strangeness of this season, the Heisman is not being awarded until January 5th. So there's still a good bit of time before that happens, although voting does end after this weekend's game. So that's another dynamic to follow there. And then, again, where does Florida end up? It seems like they're pretty much locked in to a New Year's Six game for the third straight year. But, again, if they win... Maybe they go up into the playoff. Who knows? We'll wait and see. Um, But if it's not going to be the playoff this year, Scott, it's a realization that maybe the program isn't quite there yet. And the way you get there is through recruiting. And uh, amidst everything else going on this week and all of the attention being paid to this game and for Florida, obviously a huge focus on the the health of Keontae Johnson, uh, National Signing Day was on Wednesday. So uh, a whole new crop of Gators coming in. What can you tell us about this particular group and, and some of the highlights? Well, uh, it was a busy day. I know they had a lot of, uh, they have like about 21 players sign on the early signing period. And once again, this is just proving that, you know, how the December early signing period has become National Signing Day. And, you know, the, the highlight guy is Jason Marshall Jr., the defensive back from Miami Palmetto. You know, he's a five-star guy. And, the, you know, when you when you talk about the Gators and, Maybe where they needed to improve in recruiting, you know, people always point that you need a you need a few more of those five star guys. So they got one of those in the secondary. Uh, they signed one of his teammates down at Miami Palmetto is a, another uh, defensive back, Corey Collier Jr. Uh, so you know you look at that position of need, Adam. You, you're losing guys like Donovan Steiner, Sean Davis, Brad Stewart Jr. Yeah, you're losing you're losing that group of seniors back there, so they had to replenish there. Added a couple of quarterbacks to the mix. Uh, Jalen Kitna, who uh, if you follow football for a while, you probably heard of his father, John Kitna, former mm-hmm. NFL quarterback and his high school coach. Uh, he's one of the quarterbacks, more of a, a pro-style passer. And then they, they signed a guy out of uh, Cartersville, Georgia, Carlos Del Rio Wilson, who's more of a, a typical Dan Mullen-type quarterback. So quarterbacks are always going to get highlighted. Uh, overall, I just felt they they got some high-end talent in Marshall. They went heavy on defense uh, some with the defensive line. Overall, Adam, it, it, it's a class, I think, fits some needs, uh, both sides of the ball. One guy that is it's, – it's a good story in this recruiting class is Dewan Black. Uh, he's a player that – if you follow the Gators closely, especially recruiting, he committed to the Gators back in 2018. He had originally committed to Dan Mullen when Mullen was at Mississippi State. And after Mullen comes here, he went, he flipped to Ole Miss. Mullen comes here. He decides to come to Florida. Didn't get in school, but 
decide to go the junior college route. And a lot of times, Adam, when those guys go to junior college, you never know if they're actually going to end up at the school they originally signed with. And, but Dewan Black was a guy that if you followed him on social media for the last couple of years, I mean, he, his engagement with the program was almost as if he was actually here. But instead, he was out at Mississippi Gulf Community College. Not only was he out there, he was putting together a great career as a linebacker, and a, he was the number one rated JUCO player in this year's class by some of the recruiting experts. And sure enough, he signed with the Gators today, so he made it the long way. So he's a guy that I'll be curious to watch because, you know, as a his experience, he'll be expected to come back, come in and, you know, play right away. Uh, he's one of those guys that has a great story. It sounds like a really good player and really wanted to be a Gator. So um, I'm sure the, the fans out there who follow recruiting – closely know know a lot of his story and are looking forward to watching him play moving on to our, our PAT for this week uh, we've all been thinking a lot about Keontae Johnson and, and even on Saturday uh, while Florida was going through obviously a frustrating night on the field in football I think most of us had the feeling of well we know what's really important based on what we had all seen happen earlier and what everybody was thinking about um, and, and it made me wonder for, for you guys with, you know, all the things that you've seen over the years of covering various teams, various sports at all sorts of different levels, when you covered a story within a game or, or, you know, within the context of your sports reporting, that was a reminder of, oh, wow, there's, there's bigger things than who wins or loses this game. Um, as we all obviously had that experience this past weekend. So uh, what stands out when you think about stories you've covered in your career where you, you had that realization? Well, you know, a lot of my stories often come from my time covering baseball, Adam. And the reason that is, there's so many games in baseball, obviously, and you're covering a lot more events. And I'm very thankful to say that, you know, I've never covered a football game where a player was paralyzed or something of that nature. I mean, the hit earlier this year on Kyle Pitts in the Georgia game, that was about as nasty of a hit as I've seen live. Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about on the show how when they both got up, I was, that was a relief, you know. Uh, But in terms of real world invading a couple of games I've been at, I mean, a couple stand out in my mind. One is the former major league pitcher with the double Rays, Tony Saunders, uh, you know, in the early two thousands, he was a hot prospect to pitch for the Marlins son. The Rays got him and he was one of the guys they hoped to build their young staff around. Well, you know, during a game, I mean, you heard a snap in the press box and I mean, his arm broke in half up on the upper half. I mean, it Ooh. was, it was something that stadium went silent you could hear him you know kind of screaming on the field on the mound I mean it was one of those scenes that it just turned your stomach and thankfully you know he was able to recover have surgery but then he hurt his arm again in a similar fashion and at that point you know he retires uh, that's one that always sticks out and then on probably a more of a national scale I mean I was actually with the double Rays again this would have been I think in 2002 we were in Denver. I was covering a Rays Rockies interleague series, and well, that morning, getting to the ballpark, the news broke that former Rockies pitcher Daryl Kyle had died mm-hmm. in the hotel. He died in his sleep in a Chicago hotel while the Cardinals were on it playing the Cubs, and of course, it really impacted the Rockies. And I remember they held a news conference, and obviously, I'm there. My paper wants a story since I'm there, so I go to it. I remember Larry Walker, you know, one of the greatest players of his generation. I just remember 
I mean, him, it was hard for him to even talk in a press conference. He continued to break down. And just such a subdued feeling over, over the day. And they played a game that day, but it didn't seem like that was important. So, you know, we run into those things uh, once in a while. If you hang around long enough, you hope that you don't do it very often. Uh, the Keontae Johnson situation on Saturday was certainly reminded me of those kind of situations and experiences I just discussed. And, man, some good news this week with, you know, his his turnaround. And I've been – again, I'm old enough to remember when Hank Gathers and Reggie Lewis, a couple of stars, you know, one Hank Gathers was in college and then Reggie Lewis with the Celtics. You know, I remember them dying uh, during games. And uh, just good to know that – it sounds like Keontae, whatever his condition is, it's improved a lot and uh, certainly good news for everybody. Well, I can come up with two, but uh, I'll be honest here. They're not remotely close to this. Uh, in 1989, I was covering a Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, football game. And at halftime, the halftime entertainment was the Royal Lipizzan Stallions. They came out just as the, a local high school band, marching band had just finished, uh, Lato High School in Tampa. And something happened with one of the stallions and he got spooked and broke away from the others and trampled over a, a, a tuba player. Oh, geez. Um, a, a little, a, 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 I want to say a 10th te- a grade girl. Tom McEwen was my boss at the time. He turned to me, he goes, Harry, forget the game, go. So I went and ended up, um, you know, staking out the hospital, um, waiting to see what was going on with that child. And uh, thankfully everything worked out okay with her. She went home that night. Um, I know this doesn't, doesn't compare to that, but there is a, uh, uh, something that happened in 2006 and my second time covering the Bucks. Chris Sims was playing in the third game of the year against um, the Carolina Panthers. And he got hit on a scramble play and left the game and, Everyone went into radio silence on this, and it turns out he lacerated his spleen, Oof. and it ruptured, and he was in the hospital, and he was very close to uh, dying that night, mm. as we found out in the next couple of days. But that was one of those things where, as things unfolded after the game, you know, no one was talking about it. He was nowhere to be found. There were no doctors around, and so this is, you go to the hospital until you – and you, and you play the waiting game and that's what happens in journalism. Sometimes uh, you go, you know, obviously you go chase a story and that's what chasing that story ended up being. Uh, I believe I said spleen. Uh, yeah. He, I mean, it was, it was la- It was a bad, bad injury. And that in essence, um, he ended up playing a little while longer, a few more years, but the next year he came back and he had trouble with his, with his um, uh, motor skills. And that happens sometimes when, when things, uh, when you have an organ injury, and I forget the diagnosis of it, but he was really never the same relative to his career with the Bucks. I think he played some, played some later with the Tennessee Titans, but um, that's the closest thing I can get to it, Adam. Um, but I can't get close to it, if you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying. And I, I, I can't reiterate it, um, especially being this, uh, being, being close to the team as I am and close to the, and knowing these players, knowing their some of their parents and mm-hmm. you know seeing this kid every day and you know seeing the smile on his face all the time and how much fun he has and uh, you know can't can't say enough how, how how much everyone is is just pulling for this guy and how much I'm pulling for him so can't get close to it but that's that's about as as well as I can do on that front 
Yeah, there's no question. And again, we encourage people to, to keep checking out FloridaGators.com. Uh, follow Gators MBK. That's where official news is going to come from. Uh, as the, the, the family reiterated, you know, you may hear stuff from various corners, but we're only going to be speaking directly through this channel for the the official updates. And obviously, you'll have that as well at Gators Chris. Uh, and then again, on the, the flip side of what's happening on the uh, the game standpoint, which we talked about the SEC championship, Scott will be covering that. And you can follow him at Gators Scott and check out FloridaGators.com for that as well. Obviously, uh, two very different stories right now, one of them much more important than the other uh, in this weird, you know, fractured time that we're living in. Um, and uh, obviously, everyone's hoping for the best. But thanks to both of you for, for giving us some perspective this week. And uh, we look forward to talking again next week with hopefully more good news. Thank you, Adam. If you aren't someone who follows recruiting closely, you probably don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of high schools in the state of Florida. But you don't have to be completely dialed in to have heard of American Heritage High School, which boasts a powerhouse athletic program that's produced stars like Kenny Boynton, Sony Michelle, and many more. Linebacker James Houston IV is the latest Gator to come from that Fort Lauderdale factory, and as we spend some time getting to know him, we begin by learning more about his South Florida beginnings. Um, I'm from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, Broward County area. Uh, born and raised. Um, I have a mom and a father, Sonia and James Houston. I am actually the fourth James Houston. So uh, all the way up to my great grandfather, uh, we all have the same names. So uh, the legacy is pretty big there. Um, I have two siblings, a little brother who is 13 and a big sister who is 24. So, uh, big sis, she went to FSU. Oh, tough one. Yeah. <laughs> bro is uh, still in uh, middle school. She'll be heading to high school soon. And, um, yeah, um, grew up right around in uh, western Florida. Grew up playing football, going to school, playing video games. Typical uh, kid. Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned being James Houston the fourth. I was going to ask you about that legacy. So what does the James Houston legacy mean to you? What makes that name powerful for your family? So uh, my great grandfather was actually a very, very successful uh, black man. Um, he owned businesses. He owned gas stations, properties all over uh, Belglade area of Florida. I think the legacy just really means just success, uh, being successful and um, passing down that legacy. So giving off to your, your child, your offsprings of, of uh, what, whatever made you successful in life and passing that on to the next and the next and the next. And so I've, I've got wisdom and, and advice from my great grandfather and I've never even met him. So mm. and that's one of the biggest things. Is there a, uh, an athletic legacy tied to that as well? Is there a football background, anything like that? Or are you taking the name in a, a new direction here? Uh, sort of taking it in a new direction. Uh, okay. I would, my dad is probably uh, so far the best collegiate athlete that we've had uh, in our family. He was an All-American at uh, Missouri State. So uh, he, he wears that proudly. Um, my uncle played a little bit of college basketball. But uh, other than that, we don't have too many uh, – in my immediate family, we don't have too many uh, football players that have actually played, like, Division One, like, big-time football. So I guess I'm taking it in the direction. So, okay, so if football wasn't a big part of, of your family background or that lineage, how did you start playing the game and, and what got you hooked on it? 
Yeah, so like I said, my dad was, uh, he played football. He's All-American. Uh, he did about a year in the league, uh, didn't really make it, but and decided to go back to school and do grad school. But uh, he's the one who introduced me to football. I was always an athletic kid. I would be doing backflips and spring cartwheels and, and whatnot. But, uh, and so uh, he felt like I should play football. And uh, my first time playing football, I was about eight years old. Um, it was a weird, weird little league. We had helmets and shoulder pads, but it was flag football. Hmm. So we was hitting. Yeah, we was hitting, <laughs> but we were supposed to take the – I don't really know how, how it worked. That's a, that's a mixed message there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my first game, I joined like halfway through the season. And uh, it, at my first day, I just showed up on game day. And uh, I was running around the field, and they said, he looked like he can run. And so they put me at running back. And I scored on my first time touching the ball. And uh, ever since then, I fell in love with the game. I only ended up playing half of the game. And so I didn't really know how the sport worked or, like, how anything really worked. So I was trying to play with the older kids on the next team, <laughs> ready to go up, because uh, I had only played a half of the game. But, uh, yeah, so that's really how I got introduced. And then uh, I, just, I fell in love with it from there. Um, never, I didn't take a break off since. So. You know, it's funny. We had uh, we had Damian Pearson here a couple weeks ago, and he also said the first time he touched a ball, he ran for a touchdown, and that's why he loved it too. So I guess I guess that that's a common experience a lot of guys have at this level. That's probably one of the best experiences ever: getting the ball and, and going past people and scoring a touchdown, and everybody cheering. That's and for that to be your first feeling, that's that's something that's going to definitely keep you in the sport for a long time. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so so that locks you into the sport, but what gets you on the defensive side of the ball? Because obviously now you're, you're not scoring touchdowns. You're trying to stop people from scoring touchdowns. So uh, I always thought I was going to be a running back growing up, uh, playing running back through my whole Little League career. Uh, and my dad, being a linebacker uh, in college, told me I was probably going to play linebacker uh, when I got to college. And so uh, going into high school, um, I'm still thinking I'm a running back, but I'm about – 200 pounds already, you know, six, six foot. So uh, it's not looking too good, but um, yeah, I'm still thinking I could play. I'm on JV playing a little bit of running back, you know, and um, we had a, a great, great running back named Keyshawn Bryant. And um, he was just way more talented to me at, at running back. And I realized this is probably not a position I want to play if I want to go uh, far in football. So uh, I switched over to defense, and it was a pretty easy switch. Um, I had the size and the length and everything already, so it was just getting my fundamentals down. Um, I got with my dad. Uh, we did plenty of drills over and over to learn the, the position and whatnot. And so, um, yeah, uh, I fell in love with it again. I fell in love with football all over again, um, hitting people, taking on blocks. Uh, it's just a whole different, whole different side of the ball. So, yeah, that was pretty exciting. You know, uh, Derrick Henry was famously told that he was a linebacker and didn't project out a running back either. So there may still be hope for you, right? There's still a chance. I'll be telling Knox, Coach Knox, uh, all the time, uh, I'm ready whenever you are. <laughs> Put me on the goal line package or something. I could do it. <laughs> um, so, okay, so you told us about your first moment playing football, right? That was a, a, a moment of glory. Uh, I'm curious along the way, what's been your most embarrassing moment on the field, uh, maybe one you, you wish you could take back? Um, my most embarrassing moment would probably be Little League. Um, we in the first round of the playoffs. This is my first year, like, starting at running back. And uh, I was kind of, like, leading the team and uh, 
the team, the offense was kind of built around me uh, scoring and doing a whole bunch of different things. And so it was kind of different for me being the guy. And uh, so we were in the first round of playoffs. Uh, we had a hard fought game. It's 14-14. Uh, we end up going to uh, overtime, and uh, the first team scores. So it was like Kansas City style, uh, like college style almost. And so the first team scores. Uh, I, I roll on to offense. Uh, we get stops on all three downs. It's fourth and four. We probably on like the thirty. I get a I get a run through the uh, through through the C gap. I break through the linebackers, and I'm running. I'm scrying out. All I got to beat is the safety, and he don't even really got a good angle on me. And uh, he ends up clipping one of my shoes, like a my really my shoelace, and I ended up tripping and falling. I stumbled, and I finally fell, and that was the end of the game. I didn't get the first down. Oh man, it was yeah, it was bad. It was. I felt bad. I felt like I left the team down. That was probably one of my most embarrassing moments. It could have been worse. It could have been in like a. It could have been in college, right? I guess it's, if it's going to happen, it's best that it happened when it did. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so, okay, so you were at American Heritage High School, which a lot of people know because it produces not just football players but baseball players. I mean, pretty much every sport. If you look at rosters around the state of Florida in college, you're seeing a lot of American Heritage. So, what was it like being a part of that program? And, and how did it, in a way, prepare you for being at a major program like Florida, surrounded with great athletes in, in every sport? Honestly, it's very hard to put into words, uh, just being there at that time, at that school. Um, I think we have so much talent, just the right, the right dudes around each other, great coaching staffs, great. It was almost like a family, uh, really. And we had all been growing up with each other and, and playing Little League football with each other. And so uh, that was really like a really good experience that I probably won't ever forget. Um, I played with the best of the best people in the league, people all pro, people that's uh, just, they've done it all. So, I mean, I've learned a lot from uh, that experience. Just being being at practice every day was literally probably the best thing for me because you we competed. Like, that was one thing I could say in high school. We competed every day in practice and uh, we made each other better. And it was talent all over the field. We was already talented, but just going at each other every day, I think that's what really uh, that made us uh, the players that we are and the players that we continue to show. So. Well, and that, that gives you obviously a good platform, right? A lot of attention when you're at a program like that. So what do you remember about the recruiting process and how did you ultimately get the Gators in, in your sights? Yeah, so the recruiting process, I guess it's kind of weird being from American Heritage. Uh, they already know there's plenty of talent there. So, like, they're kind of on look for it. They may have not came to the school for you, but ended up seeing you or offering mm-hmm. you or whatever. So it was a little bit weird. Everybody was getting offers left and right. But uh, my journey was a little bit different. I played, actually played JV my first two years in high school. Um, didn't play until my junior year. My junior year, I actually ended up starting. And uh, it was about halfway through the season, about five games in. Uh, where when they told me I got my first offer and uh, it was it was so weird because um, I was in like ninth period weightlifting my coach comes in and he uh, calls me over he has a a sheet and it has like 12 players names on it he's like hey you just got an offer I was like what he's like you just got an offer from Wisconsin I was like shut up I'm like, I ain't never, ever, you know, no school ain't really talking to me. I was talking to, like, FAU and FIU. So they uh, they said, yeah, Wisconsin offered you. I was happy. 
And then I saw the list and I was like, so what's that in your hand? And he was like, oh, this is everybody that got offered. And he, he rambled off about 12 names. And the excitement kind of died down a little bit because I was like, man, that wasn't really for me. It was just kind of like they just gave me an offer. But looking back on it, it wasn't. Uh, Wisconsin was one of my offers that uh, came to, down to the last decision. I was number one on their board on defense. Uh, I really liked Wisconsin, but uh, ended up not going there. Uh, but, yeah, recruiting was probably really different. After I got that first offer, they just started to come in. Being that it was a Big Ten school, uh, schools from all over started coming in. Uh, Miami, Florida State, and then uh, Florida came in last out of the Florida schools. Hmm. Yeah, once uh, I talked to Florida, that first phone call, Coach Shannon, I talked to Coach Randy Shannon. Mm-hmm. And he just gave me some type of vibe. I really enjoyed talking to him, and then I learned about him. I learned about his uh, resume and, and what he's accomplished and who he's coached. And uh, that just really just – that took it all in for me. I knew I was probably going to end up going there. I wanted to be coached by him and all that and be part of the Florida Gators. So, uh, yeah, that's really how I got here. What's interesting, too, kind of the, the nature of the, the college football business is Randy Shen's the guy that, that brought you in, and that's who you believed in that connected you to the program. And now for, you know, for a lot of fans, he's a, he's a distant memory, right? That was three years ago. That's forever in football time. Um, so then when, when the new staff came in, given that your initial connection was, was so much about him, how did you make those new bonds to further connect you to the program when you have a new staff? Yeah, it was a little difficult uh, connecting with them just because of what happened the whole last year. I was going four and eight and whatnot and, and them coming in and wanting to, you know, take over the program and, and kind of get away from that old uh the old way of the Gators and just and build their own thing. So, you know, you had to make new connections. You had, you know, you had to, to, to get to know these guys. Uh, they didn't really recruit me. I, I had an offer from Mississippi State, but I wasn't recruited by them. I wasn't really considering going there at, at any point. Yeah, it was difficult. I mean, you had to literally get to know your coaches all over again. And it wasn't recruit type of vibe where they want that, you know what I'm saying? It's more of a want and, and, and we need to get you. It's, it's mm. just kind of, kind of stuck with you. Let's make it what it is. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was a little different, but um, I'm glad I'm, I'm still here. I'm glad I'm a Florida Gator. A big part of that I know is also making those connections with the, the guys in the locker room once you get somewhere. So what do you remember about when you came in, the players that, that took you under their wing and kind of showed you the way both on and off the field? Yeah, uh, so there was a lot of players that uh, when I first came in, so I was an early enrollee, so I got to see a lot of players come in and out. I got to see JD and Anzalone for a little bit, even though they were uh, training, they would come back and, and, and say what's up to the guys. And so uh, I've seen probably every different uh, path possible coming through here, uh, being early enrollee, just seeing everything. I'm very thankful for all the guys in the locker room. They've taught me a lot about football on and off the field, just from different guys, from star guys to walk-ons who know they're not playing football like this and, and are trying to do something with their life, trying to make connections and whatnot throughout the business world. And so the locker room actually is a very important and if you use it the right way, it can, you can use it to a great advantage of just knowledge and, and different backgrounds and perspectives. As you've become one of the older guys, I guess there's a shift that takes place where suddenly you know, people are looking up to you. So 
as you've taken on more of that role as an upperclassman, what do you think you've been able to share with some of the younger guys that's been valuable to them just in the same way that the ones before you did for you? Yeah, I would say uh, probably my mistakes. My mistakes, uh, that's the easiest thing to learn from because, I mean, I, I did what I did what you probably want to do, and I suffered the consequence. So now you know what it is that you would get out of that and what you wouldn't. So uh, just sharing that, sharing my knowledge, my experience with uh, the coaches over the years, learning how to uh, just just do the right thing on the field, how to uh, make the coaches trust you, make the coaches uh, believe in you and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, that's probably the easiest thing I can share with the, with the young guys. In terms of this could be from, from other players or from coaches or mentors in your life, what, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given that you reflect on or, or that you think about from time to time? I'll probably say just listening to your coach, like honestly and like actually listening to your coach, like opening your ears and listening to what he's actually saying. Maybe he may not be saying it in the right way or, or saying it in the right tone, but like listening to exactly what he's saying and what he wants so that you can execute exactly what it is that he wants on the field. You talked about some of the guys in the locker room you looked up to. I'm curious, looking next level at the NFL, uh, whether it's current players, former players, who are guys that you watch and and you try and model your game after, people that you admire and look up to yourself? Uh, probably the only linebacker I would say, other than like Ray Lewis, just him being the, the national icon, my middle linebacker that he is, uh, the player that I probably looked up to the most, like that I thought I was most like, was probably Patrick Willis. I love Patrick Willis. I love the way he played, um, the way he fit the run, the way he just was dominant and, and explosive. And then also uh, Ryan Shazier, which uh, I probably wasn't, probably not the best play, player to uh, compare myself to because I'm not like him. But I probably I wanted I wanted to be like him. I wanted to have that speed and and uh, just get sideline to sideline and stuff like that. And so those probably the two players that I watch or emulate the most. And a good guy to admire for what he does off the field as well, for sure. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, if people think about the season you've had, the thing they probably remember most is the the hit you had on Mathis in Jacksonville. Um, it, it looked a lot like the Brandon Spikes hit in Jacksonville. Uh, have you heard from Brandon Spikes? Did he reach out to you at all to to discuss the, the similarities there? Nah, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, he didn't talk, get out to me about the hit. Or nothing. <laughs> we 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 contact a little bit. We uh we say what's up every now and then. You know, it's funny because you see a play like that, and even when you watch it in slow motion, it's like wow. There's there's such a, a small there's such a, a tiny line there that makes that a great hit or targeting right. So the way that the rules have changed and the emphasis on that. As a guy who's trying to lay out big hits and obviously stop guys in their tracks, how difficult is that trying to to find what you can and what you can't do when you're going full speed? Yeah, it's a little difficult. Uh, I honestly don't agree, really agree with the rules, especially in college, um, just because of the the time needed to to like maneuver your body and things like that. And I think it's just really difficult because the offense doesn't really even think about targeting at all. So. I mean, they can run as low as they want. They can duck their heads as much as they want, and it's, it's not targeting. So um, it's, it's a little difficult. Um, I've learned to kind of just just play however I play. If I feel like 
a crazy shot on somebody and I know I probably shouldn't do it and I have time to think about it and react to it, then I'll move out the way or, or position my body in a different way. But some of those hits, it's, it's, it's bang, bang. It's, it's timed up and it's not much you can really do about it. Uh, when you have time off the field, I'm sure there's not a lot of it, but what do you enjoy doing when you, you get away from the game and, and you don't have to worry about, well, should I hit this guy as hard as I possibly can? <laughs> yeah, I'm a real laid-back guy, so uh, I like watching movies, playing video games. Uh, I go to the beach when I'm home. I love the beach. Um, just hanging out with my friends and stuff like that. Uh, I'm a pretty chill dude. I don't, I don't like to do too much. We've talked to a lot of your teammates over the course of the year about things that they discovered during quarantine, during pandemic times. Uh, I know you said you're you're a movie guy. What's the best movie or TV show that you discovered uh, during the last eight, nine months? Mm, best movie or TV show? I've discovered this show a little bit before Corona, but uh, I probably watched the majority of it during Corona. The, the show is called The 100. It's on Netflix. Someone else told us about it. I can't remember who it was, but earlier this season, someone else mentioned that as well. It's a nice little show. Uh, it's pretty interesting. It's got its ups and downs and stuff like that. It's got about eight seasons, so uh, I was binge watching. <laughs> That's good. You got to find something. You got to find a deep roster. Otherwise, you get bored real quickly, right? Definitely. Yeah. Um, during quarantine, this is my favorite question I've asked guys all year because we've gotten a ton of different answers to it. Uh, if I told you you had to spend the entirety of quarantine sharing a place with one of your teammates, who is the one that you could share with and who's the one guy you could not have done the whole thing with? Man, that's tough because I live by myself. So I'm not, <laughs> I don't really be thinking about living with too many people, but, uh, most of the guys just gave me like their roommate. And so that's boring. You have to be with that guy. So you, you can give us a really good answer for this. My old roommate was Nick Smith. Uh, I stayed with Kadarius. Um, I've stayed with a lot of people in Keys. Um, and I've also stayed with uh, Ventro Miller. So I guess Ventro would probably be the easiest to stay with. He's my linebacker and, and whatnot. And, and we get along very good. So he's probably the easiest person that I could stay with. The worst. Who's the deal breaker? <laughs> deal breaker. I don't know. It probably just because I already know, like I know he don't clean up probably my mood. You know, his locker is, is too dirty for me. So I already know the house can't be too clean. So I would say probably my mood. You got to know what people are good at, what they're not, right? If he's not going to be clean, not even worth trying it. All right. Yeah. A um, couple final things for you. you know, we're coming to the end of this uh, very strange season, but even with everything and how much things have changed, what's been the strangest part of this year? Like, what has surprised you the most about this this COVID football season? Uh, the football season, probably, I mean, we had about four weeks off in the middle of the season. So uh, that was a little weird. Um, just having that break, you know, because we wasn't like, we weren't doing anything. We weren't uh, practicing, we weren't working out, we weren't doing anything mm -hmm. while other people were playing. So I guess that was probably just the weirdest thing, just having that break, which was actually pretty nice. Maybe they should start looking into something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was, that was definitely the weirdest thing. We'll drop a little note off to the, uh, the SEC commissioner for yeah. you. Um, <laughs> final thing for you, as, as you look kind of inward on, on the season you've had on where you are in your journey, what, what are the main focuses for you going forward? What are you really trying to improve? What are you looking to do to be the, the best James Houston, the fourth that you can be? 
Uh, I would probably say consistency, uh, just being more consistent and uh, finishing. Uh, being a consistent finisher, I guess, would be it. Um, I think that's going to take me a uh, far ways, um, staying in the playbook and, and doing what I need to do. I, I think uh, it, those two things will, will help me take me very far. Well, you have consistently finished during this interview, so thank you so much for your time and, and best luck to you the rest of the way. Thank you so much, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to stay locked on FloridaGators.com for the latest information on Florida and Alabama and the SEC Championship, and of course, the latest news on Keontae Johnson. Until next time, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe, keep Keontae and his family in your thoughts, and go Gators.